0: Hello, welcome to the episode of the Let People Prosper Show. My name is Dr. Vance Ginn. Thank you for joining us here today. Uh, We're going to have a great discussion uh, with my friend, Happy Warrior, and just overall good guy, Dr. Robert Lawson. Bob, welcome to the show. Hi, Vance. Good to be here. Great, great. We're recording this on September 27th, and um, we're going to have a good discussion on a lot of things, economic freedom, um, socialism sucks, a good book that Bob wrote with his co-author Ben Powell, uh, and a few other things. But let me go over his, his bio first. Dr. Bob Lawson holds the full and wider chair in economic freedom, and he directs the Bridwell Institute uh, for, Global Mar- for Global Freedom Institute there at SMU. He is also is a founding co and is <laughs> a founding co author of the wiley cited Economic Freedom in the World Index and has written more than 100 academic articles, book chapters, policy reports, and book reviews. So we just wanted to jump right into this and have a good discussion today, Bob. Let's start off with why do you do what you do? What what motivates you?
1: Well, Vance, I have a flippant answer and a uh, somewhat serious answer. The flippant answer is, you know, I grew up in a working class family. We weren't living on the streets, but we didn't have a lot of money. And I started working outside the home, doing odd jobs, uh, painting apartments, scraping the insides of pools. And uh, I decided, uh, you know, as I grew up, I became a bartender, waiter, I decided I didn't really like working for a living, and I I saw that college professors didn't seem to work really hard, so I decided I want to be a college professor. That's the flip answer, (laughs) but it does have a grain of truth. But the, the real serious answer is, you know, I went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and I studied with a guy named Richard Vetter, and I just fell in love with economics. And really, since I was 18 years old, from my very first economics course in college, I have wanted to do nothing else but but do and talk about economics, and it's it's a dream job. But I, I feel lucky to have it.
0: Well, I, I always enjoy listening to you when you're talking about economics, and you really um, do get in do get into it into the details. And one of the things that I really like that you do is this teaching free enterprise I'm across the state of Texas and but other states as well. Really try to teach teachers about free enterprise. Would you mind explaining a little bit about what you do there?
1: Yeah, sure. About about. Five six years ago, we started this teaching free enterprise program, and what we do is we we have college faculty uh, and other PhDs, people like yourselves, Hans, and and we write curriculum units, little modules, and they're designed to be t- uh, for school teachers, mostly high school teachers, to take these modules, these little units that we've developed, and uh, teach use them in their classrooms. And you know, it, it's a little bit unfair because there's some really really good economics teachers at the high school level in the state of Texas. And are the country but we also know that the reality is quite a few people who are ended up teaching economics at the high school level are you know it's the it's the track coach Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yeah um and they're very passionate about doing a very they do a good job but you know they don't have a lot of training necessarily in economics and so we wanted to kind of create these these sort of turnkey units that you could just hand deliver to them we do workshops uh, all all over the state of texas and and really now throughout the country without exaggeration now hundreds sometimes into the thousands of teachers each year will go through our programs and you know we're just trying to get uh, elevate the the quality of curriculum materials that they have at their uh, disposal
0: well it's really a great program um, for the for the listeners just to check it out I'll put it in the show notes page a link to it as well uh, but there's just so much good information and it, it's it's interesting too because I mean recently I went to Beaumont and Taught some teachers and um, was able to do one of your units, Bob, on on trade and, and it's not just the information which is important. Uh, look at you know what the basic of economics will tell you about trade and the importance of trade and, and and everything else. But it's also some about a little bit about the math, but not a lot about the math. But what I really like about what the program does is it is it makes it to where it's tangible, it's interactive. So there's a game, there's a trade game that goes on that shows, okay, you value a hairbrush by X and I value a pen by Y. What happens if we trade Uh, Will our values improve and I know in that particular instance I think there were 10 people that 10 teachers that were in there kind of split them up into different groups and just within their own group five here and five in another group um, their values once you started off the average value per person increased whenever they had the exchanges and then in the next round kind of expanded to all 10 and the value increases it even more. And and so I I wonder whatever you were thinking about putting that together, what were some of the insights that you hope to uh, convey to the audience?
1: Well, you know, it's a cliche. I teach in a business school and it's a cliche in business schools to say trade creates value, value Mm -hmm. creation. It's a little bit of a a buzzword, Uh, but value does get created when we make trades. And that little trade game exercise uh, is one of the greatest ways it gets people up out of their seats. And um, you can just tell people trade creates value, you can assert it. But when they go through that exercise, and they actually make trades, and then they try to measure the value from those trades, and they see how value grows after the trades, it really reinforces that point. I mean, we know from pedagogy research that active learning, it works better. Now, it's hmm. awfully hard to make some things active learning, like it's calculus. <laughs> it's hard to make calculus active learning. I mean, it's calculus, yeah. but. Whenever you have a chance to teach about a concept to uh, students, or in this case we're teaching teachers, uh, and you can make it, you can make it active. You can get a map out of their seats. They're gonna, whatever the concept is you're trying to teach, they're gonna. It'll, it'll get reinforced much more strongly than if they're sitting passively writing notes in a in a in a notebook
0: well that's right and i know in the the other unit that you have um as part of teaching for enterprise is a labor market that's the one that i wrote uh where, where we do a minimum wage game uh kind of some are employers uh, some of the class will be employers some of the class will be employees and they have different reservation wages, you know, what they're willing to reserve their labor for in order to work, whatever that wage has to be. And you kind of go through in the first system of free enterprise system with no minimum wage. And the, the average wage, it typically is around $10 just the way that the game is put together. Um, and I'll come in and say, okay, that's not a living wage. You can't live off of $10 an hour. I'm going to be the government, uh, which is kind of uh, I don't want to be, but <laughs> but that's what I say. I'm going to be the government. I'm going to come in. I'm going to mandate a living wage of fifteen dollars, a minimum wage. It's going to be a price floor so you can teach about the price floor as well and um, i do that i do it all again and what you notice is that those those um, employers that would hire maybe two workers before will only end up hiring one because it's more profitable that way and so you see more people who are unemployed in the marketplace uh in the last session i kind of go through and say okay what if there's not a minimum wage but there's increased productivity. There's an increase in right. skills, and so the marginal revenue from the firm side starts to go up from each time. Um, and so now more people are not only employed, but they get a higher wage. And so instead of the average wage going from ten dollars to fifteen, now the average wage is around twelve dollars. But Everybody has a job that kind of wants one in that sort of situation. And I think this sort of interactive approach is really what we need more of. Because I know whenever I was teaching at like Sam Houston or Texas Tech uh, for a while and and doing this game, just the light bulbs would start going on. And uh, I know you saw with that one. What's another game that you like to do?
1: But, you know, uh, I, uh, besides the trade game, one of my favorite – it's not even a game, but I could pan over uh, up here on my win, uh, my shelf over here. I've got a set of lawn darts. Ah. And, I, and you remember lawn darts, the old game? Yeah. Where you throw the metal spikes through the air. It got banned in 1986. I'm not even sure you were around in 1986, fans. Uh, barely. Barely, uh, yeah. The, the, <laughs> um, and, and I'm teaching about uh, risk and return and safety and the trade-offs. Again, it's standard economics. You know, trade-offs. Mm. We're always trading off one value for another. Sometimes we trade off uh, our safety. You know, yeah. every time you get in a car, you, you, you trade off your safety in order to achieve your, what some objective. And that—that's a—that's a lecture. You can do that as a lecture, but yeah. I like to use lawn darts, and it's a visual. And you—and a lot of students today have never seen lawn darts. And you pull this metal spike out of the air, and you wave it around in the classroom, and you pretend you're going to throw it at them, and they all recoil. I mean, again, it's not a game, but it's. It's it makes that classroom experience, and every time they think about seatbelts or other safety things, you know the discussion we all have about, uh, you know, helmet laws for motorcyclists, mm-hmm. whatever. They're gonna remember all oh, that that Jart lecture, you know, that, that just it gives their brain an anchor point that yeah. they don't really get just from a straight lecture.
0: No, that, that it's so true, and I mean, there's a lot of things too that go into that that we could probably build on because you got your PhD at Florida State, right? Yes, sir. Go, Seminoles. There you go. There you go. You know, I I think one of the things that is talked a lot about in economics is you know positive economics using a lot of math, and I think that's important to a certain degree. But it but also goes into the the assumptions. That are in these models. That's kind of the institutional framework that I think a lot of us as economists, you know, think about. But there are a lot of different institutional frameworks that are out there. You know, you've got Keynesian school and New Keynesian and all these different types of schools. Um, and I, I wonder what kind of your thoughts are on the, the math that's involved in these different types of schools of economics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sad reality that to study economics at the advanced level now, you need to be pretty much a mathematician. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that you need more math to get a PhD in economics than you do to get a PhD in physics. And mm-hmm. that is not a, that's not a kind thing to say really about economics. Hmm. Now there are some, I, I'm a, I I use some math when I teach students and I, I like math, I'm good at it. And I think there are some things in economics that we learn better and we, we learn more precisely because of using mathematics. I always use the example of comparative advantage. It's a, It's a freshman level concept. It's something you would teach like in week two of a principal's class to freshman undergraduates. But it's not a really straightforward concept. And until you actually do like a numerical or mathematical example, it doesn't really sink in to to most people. So there are there are reasons to do math. Now, having said that, we've taken it way beyond what's reasonable. I mean, and I, I do think that we're turning out a lot of economists today who uh, you know, they really can't see the forest through the trees. They 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 know the math. They're good at the math, but they really don't know economics and, and what really matters in the real world of economics. And they and when you ask, you cannot actually tell. You get a new PhD. I'm, I'm this is not a kind thing to say either, but you get a new PhD. Just got his you know his or her PhD, and you ask them a real world question like about inflation and the Fed or uh, the minimum wage, and they they like they have a puzzled look. And the puzzled look is because they're they're trying to do math in their head, like. Like, oh, yeah, what's the, what's the model say? Like, you know what? You know what? You're a professional economist. You should be able to talk about inflation in the Fed. And Maybe you're wrong, but you you ought to be able to talk about it without a bunch of math. Uh, and unfortunately, too many people in our profession are, are math first, and economics comes a distant second.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and whenever you see that happening, even today, to your point, I mean, we have a lot of people who still follow the Phillips curve. Yeah. Uh, as even as there's some trade-off between the unemployment rate and inflation, and and if we just tweak, if we just tweak the wheels of the economy just right, we can we can get it to where we want it to be. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it also goes to the fact that economists don't study history anymore either. No, we just don't. I mean, the history of the Phillips curve is a fascinating history. It was once upon believed to be dogma, and then it kind of fell off. And I think the reason it's kind of coming back in favor is because people didn't. They didn't study the history of the Phillips Curve debate. Mm. They don't know what what Milton Friedman talked about in his nineteen sixty eight presidential address. They've all they've all forgotten that, and so it's pretty easy to fall victim again to to bad ideas because you just haven't studied the history of those bad ideas and realize, oh my gosh, this is not the first time this bad idea has popped up. And uh, but so it, it's like you have to well again you have to reeducate a gener- every new generation, but. We're doing a pretty poor job of, of teaching history and economics.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think with all that, and we'll, we kind of move on, but I think a, a big part of it, to your point, was is that maybe focus a little bit less on the math and more on the history. Yeah, <laughs> more yeah. on more the
1: principles. I think it, that. I mean, yes. Uh, you know, I, I, I took history of economic thought. I was one of the last students, and I was required to take an all-day exam mm. in it. It was a core exam, and they got rid of it right after I left and replaced it with, uh, guess what, a math, a math, math, mm-hmm. mathematical exam. So my own alma mater has fallen you know, victim to it, too.
0: Yeah. You know, speaking of Milton Friedman and institutions and, and those sort of things, you know, I, I'd like to move over now into the economic freedom of the world. And I think Milton Friedman was part of this discussion, um, Courtney and, and others. And, I, you know, you, you've been working on this for a while now, Bob, and, and I think there's just so much that's being provided in the Economic Freedom of the World Index that's not only helping us understand what economic freedom kind of is and is not, but also the relationship it has with prosperity, you know, the the show, let people prosper there. There's so much involved. And so um, if if you would, would you mind giving us some background on the, on the, on the report and in the index and kind of some of the details about it?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, along with Jim Gortney, I helped found this thing called the economic freedom of the world index. It's published by the Fraser Institute, which is a public policy think tank in Canada. And it was actually Milton Friedman's idea. And, and, in the late 80s, and I was a high school student, so this is, this is uh, you know, lore to me. It's just, you know, stories that have been passed down to my generation. But Milton Friedman and others were, they were actually arguing amongst themselves uh, at a conference about whether or not economic freedom was getting worse or better, whether we were moving more in the direction of capitalism or more in the direction, let's say, of socialism. And there was actually just disagreement on the fundamental fact of the matter, like which way are we going? And Milton Friedman was exasperated. He's like, well, how are we going to get anywhere in this great debate about capitalism and socialism? We don't even know where we are. We don't even know the basic trend, if, if it's getting better or worse. And so he came up with the idea that, that someone, it wasn't going to be him, but someone should do an economic freedom index that tries to measure how on a sort of capitalism to socialism scale, how, how where is your country is it more on the capitalism side of the scale or is it more on the socialism side of the scale and jim gourtney my my professor went to a conference with milton and he came back from that conference and ordered me to start gathering the data and we produced our first proto index in 1992 first real publication came out in 96 and i've been doing it every year since we just came out uh, just a couple weeks ago with our latest report
0: yeah and, and the the latest report and it's always the data is 2 years Uh, behind right right yeah
1: you know so it takes about a year for the say the world bank or the world economic forum or whoever's data i'm using It takes about a year for them to get the data processed and published and then it takes us about another year to get their data and put it into our our computers and publish our report so we're we just released the 22, the 2022 report, but the latest numbers in that report are from 2020, uh, which, of course, is a, a pretty big year. I mean, this is the year of COVID. Um, COVID hit the world. Uh, maybe I should give the punchline away. It was not good. Yes. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the Economic Freedom Index for the world, if you if you want to see, like, the graphs going up and then going up, going up, and then 2020, it, it's like a just a cliff. So the world – responded to the COVID crisis, not just the United States, but the whole world, by spending and regulating uh, people's lives, spending more money, taxing more, borrowing more, and regulating, you know, sometimes regulating down to the to the detail of how many people could be in a restaurant, you know. So the index, we became a lot less economically free because of COVID. Um, and and yeah. so our index is you know, captured that. That's, I guess, good. But uh, you know, it's a pretty, it's pretty bleak picture when you look at that, that graph. We gave up about 10 years' worth of, of progress. And moving towards more economic freedom in the world, we gave about a decade's worth of progress.
0: Wow. Yeah, it is something else. And it's quite telling, those charts that you have in the report. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes page as well. But it's, it, it was dramatic. And um, the economic freedom, the liberty that was lost during that time is going to take a a while to get back in in so many ways. And one of the things, of course, to look at, since we're in the U.S., is that we we also fell from, what, sixth place to seventh place?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the ranking didn't fall very much. Every country went down, so the rankings didn't change much. But I think this is a good example where we should look at the ratings, not the rankings. But but yeah the us is down we're we're, we're you know, we've been in the middle single digits now for a, a while you know if you go back in time we have data back to the 70s and the us score now not the ranking but the score now is back where it was in the Carter administration. So all of the, all of the privatization, all the tax cutting, all of the movements towards freer trade, all the liberalization, you know, are the people that don't like this, they call it neoliberalism, you know, but all of the liberalization that happened under Reagan and Bush, and even under Clinton, and, and it's all gone. <laughs> it's, you know, we're back essentially to where we started in the United States, at least according to our index. Um, and that's That's pretty doggone sad. I mean, you know, so many people spent their lives and careers working hard to move those policies towards more economic freedom and very short order. It all kind of withered away.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and and it's interesting, too, because it ties in nicely, but it ties in with what uh what's happening, you know, forty years ago. I mean, we've seen seen the highest inflation rate since eighty-one, uh, which was the year that I was born. You were going back to eighty-six earlier. <laughs> um, you, you look good, you, man. Yeah, thanks, thanks. <laughs> uh, but in a whole generation, right? In my in my lifetime, I haven't seen this sort of inflation. Um, I haven't seen the spike in interest rates like we've seen here here recently. And it it brings up some do you buy now or do you wait? Do you, it changes a lot of behavior. I mean, as we know, economics is all about trade offs and the behavioral effects that these sort of things happen. We see inflation, interest rates, job, the labor market, everything else are kind of signals and indicators about what's happening in the economy. And it gives people a little bit of stress. I mean, I think we're seeing in depression rates going up, you know, uh, suicide rates, uh, fentanyl, overdosers, overdoses, and things of that nature. It's not just, the economics, right? I mean, we talk a lot about GDP and how is declining real economic output in the first two quarters and that sort of thing. And that's one indication that we, we can use of what's going on in the economy, but it, it may not necessarily tell us all about the other factors that are going on in people's lives and in their families and everything else on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you may have a really high GDP, but you you still have people that are kind of suffering in the process. And I think some of what you're able to tease out with the economic freedom of the world helps to get at at least a part of that problem, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about having the index uh, in place, and now, again, we have a long time series. We can go mm-hmm. back to, with data to the 70s from many, many, many countries is that we're able to actually evaluate uh, empirically as scholars the uh, the relationship between economic freedom or capitalism or whatever you want to call it and various social economic outcomes. Sure, we can look at GDP and GDP growth and, and the sort of economics kinds of variables, but you can also look at access to clean water or literacy. Or gender equality, or a number of, of, of social indicators, or inequality, uh, economic inequality, and um, you know the good news is I think there's been a a sort of uh, slow and maybe grudging acknowledgement on the part of scholars in this that that work on economic development that that economic freedom uh, works in the sense that it provides. Yeah, better GDP and better growth, but it also uh, improves a lot of social indicators of well-being. And and uh, that, to the extent we care about those things as well as we care about GDP, that's good. Um, I mentioned inequality deliberately because I think the greatest debate we have right now about this capitalism socialism uh, thing is is the is about inequality. Many people believe Thomas Piketty, the the famous French economist, and and, and many others. They many people believe that if you have a capitalist or economically free system that that will uh, will engender a lot of economic inequality and economic inequality has a lot of negatives associated with it you know the stress that you mentioned earlier uh the good news is if you look at the something like 50 papers now that are academic papers that have been published the good news is it doesn't seem like economic freedom really causes any damage to equality I want to be fair, it doesn't seem like it makes the world a lot more equal either. It's sort of the answer is like zero. Like it doesn't seem to affect it positively or negatively. It's just sort of there. But that's a, that's, if that kind of scholarly finding can percolate in the scholarly world and then get taught to students and maybe make it to a couple policymakers, I think we will, we will have, uh, this index will have done a really important and and worthwhile job.
0: Definitely. I agree. One of the things that I think we saw in, 2017, 2018, 2019, kind of in that period, whenever you had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you had the deregulation that was going on during that time. So you think about more economic freedom that was happening in 2019, of course, before COVID and and the shutdowns and everything else. I mean, we we had the lowest poverty rates on record, Uh, the highest real median household incomes. Income inequality was actually, you know, falling during that period. And this was counter to a a lot of that discussion from Piketty and and others that were out there like this is going to lead to more income inequality. So it's not just that we have some theory, but we're we have more evidence (laughs) that, that this is going on, along with what you're finding in the economic freedom of the world, because what you also do, what I think is great about the report, is you look at the different quartiles and say, okay, what happens to personal income with this quartile and another quartile? Um, uh, what are what are some of the results you found uh, this time around?
1: Yeah, so pretty much the same thing we find every time. Yeah, uh, but the you know if you look at uh, GDP or GDP growth or literacy or education, what you find is that you know countries that are high on the index have good measures of these things. Countries that are lower on the index, we do it by quartile, top twenty five percent second, third, and fourth. And you look at the top versus the bottom, like if you just look at income and like, again, I think income might be an overrated statistic, but it's not, it's not nothing. Uh, If you look at income, the average income in the countries in the top quarter of our index is about eight to nine times larger than the countries in the bottom per you know income per person. If you look at inequality, it looks like a flat line. Again, inequality doesn't doesn't correlate at all with the kind of economic system you have. Um, so if you want to attack inequality, and many people want to attack inequality with some public policies, I don't really have a good answer for for those people because I don't think we found a magic set of public policies that will deliver equality. We have found yeah. a magic set of policies that delivers prosperity. Right. Uh, and, and that's economic freedom.
0: Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I, um, you know, I think too, about the, uh, Adam Smith's the theory of moral sentiments, uh, how, you know, people say, well, we're trying to be self-interested and that's not necessarily the case is that you, you kind of want to be loved or loving. Uh, I like the way that uh, Russ Roberts puts it in, in, in his book on Adam Smith and talks a lot about the differences there and, Um, that are commonly put on Adam Smith that just wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, because if we're not being loving, right, then we're not going to have exchanges. If we don't have some sort of trust in each other, then we're not going to have those same exchanges. I mean, all these things are really broken down. Yes, we have government that can uphold private property rights and have a justice system, but there's also just norms and, and values that we have amongst each other. Some of the times whenever I'm just driving down the road, which on 35, you know, you've got a lot of traffic. Uh, here, in, here in the Austin, Texas area. Um, but my, my boys will be in the back seat. And I'll say, you know, you know guys, um, it's interesting because when you're just driving down the road, it's like supply and demand. And they're probably like, Dad, come on, man, what are, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, because right now, if there's too much demand for my particular lane, there's going to be more traffic. But if the lane next to me has more supply, I can shift over and, and go a little bit faster. Um, but there's also a lot of trust. We're on the, we're on the road every day driving and we trust all these people around us. So yes, we have car insurance and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, it's, it's a highly uh, dangerous situation. That we're getting in this uh, hundred, you know, thousands of pounds, uh, vehicle and just driving around town and, and just one example of all the exchanges that are taking place. Yeah, I mean, we, we
1: go to a restaurant, and you take a credit card, and you hand yeah. it to somebody, and they disappear. Yeah, You know, that level of social trust, uh, uh, by the way, freaks out a lot of people from other countries. They're like, you let your credit card walk away? <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, in most countries, if you leave, your credit card's never coming back, right? Right. And, and it, it's true that, that you know, uh, there are some countries that probably have more social trust than the United States, but we have a lot of social trust. Mm-hmm. And, and and that that's you know that's something that I think is developed alongside a market economy, when people have repeated economic dealings with each other, they learn to trust each other, especially when those dealings are voluntary and mutually agreeable and value creating. Again, to use the buzzword, yeah. um, if you go to countries where where the system is more regulated, where it's always rule based, there's a bureau- mm-hmm. bureaucrat in, involved in the transactions. There's always these. The, building up the trust is a lot harder. Hmm. And so there's a lot of academic work, I you know I'm an academic so there's a lot of academic work. We actually have measures of social trust and uh, you you'll, you you know, it's not you're not wrong when you're driving down the road and you see a car on the on the on the right and You've got to trust that that car is not going to break the rule and come out in front of you. Well, you know, in large part, parts of the world, they will, you know, they forget the rules. They just, yeah. you know, so what
0: rules, <laughs> you know, and
1: so you've seen traffic in the rest of the world is usually snarled up much more than ours. And, and I think yeah. the part of that is because um, we have norms and rules that we've developed over time. This government's not really involved in this. We just developed them. But that's the kind of the, 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 the kind of high functioning society that we
0: all aspire to have. Mm-hmm. And speaking of high-functioning high, high uh, functioning societies, so who was number one this year? Well, it's
1: always, it's always the same answer so far. It's Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong, we, we, we call it a country. They have their own GDP and their own money. So they're, they they run their own economy, economic system. Yeah. So and Hong Kong's been number one every year we've done this index uh, all the way back to the 70s. And it's the freest economy, the lowest hmm. taxes, the freest trade, the lowest regulations. Uh, second is, is Singapore, and they're pretty much in the same – orbit. Um, What is a little bit interesting is that neither one of them are political democracies or Hmm. very, very good political democracies. But most of the rest of the countries in the top would be New Zealand, United Kingdom, Australia, United States. It's going to be mostly uh, sort of liberal democracies. At the bottom, we have Venezuela. Yeah. uh, And I should mention for the audience, we don't rate North Korea. So North Korea would undoubtedly be worse on any rating system, but we don't have data for North Korea, so we don't score them. And we also don't rate Cuba. Okay. So the lowest we have is Venezuela.
0: What about China? Where does China rank? Well, China rank's actually in
1: the third quartile. They're somewhere, I forget the exact number, the new number, yeah. I haven't memorized them all, but they're around 110 out of 165. And mm-hmm. that's not very good. We have to be rec- We have to recognize, I mean, I don't have a number for 1975, Mao's China, right after yeah. the end of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. I mean, on a scale of 10, Mao's China probably was a 1.2. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> very low. And now they're like a 6. And that's below average now on the scale. But uh, they've gone up a lot. They, China has liberalized tremendously. Yeah. And the economic growth that the people in China have enjoyed because of that liberalization is huge i think it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to humanity frankly is is getting the government now the government's still too powerful in china but getting the government out of the 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 economy in china even to the little bit that they've done has unleashed this this extreme extreme prosperity uh in china i think a lot of people are angsting about that but i i frankly look i'm not I cannot look at a world where we had four or five hundred million people go from absolutely abject, horrible starvation poverty to now living dignified middle class lives. Mm -hmm. That's a half a billion people in like a generation and a half, two generations. It's yeah. the greatest thing that's ever happened to humanity.
0: Um, I mean, it's it's about 50% more people that live in the United yeah, States. Exactly. I mean, so right? it's,
1: it's, it's just a, the, the – ma- obviously, China's huge, the sheer magnitude yep. of this. But to elevate hundreds of millions of people yeah. out of the worst poverty on Earth to now living lives that are really quite envy. Like today, large parts of the world would look at, at middle-class Chinese as – like they would envy that living. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a great thing. I realize there's political challenges. The Chinese government is evil. Yeah, I, I don't plan to go back in China, so I can say things like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I think the government's evil and vile. Uh, but it's despite the government, in spite of the government, that's really bad policies that the Chinese people have been been able to prosper. And I think it's a great thing. We should we should be happy for this. Yeah, um, not sad I, with the full recognition there are political challenges with the Chinese government.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I think that there are certain things that should be addressed in that in that area, in that space. Uh, But to your point, it's important to really understand what's happened during that period. I mean, I think too often what we hear Especially in the political class, uh, but also in the media is just try to blame China for a lot of the problems that maybe haven't happened in the Rust Belt. Um, that they took our jobs, that this liberalization over that period of time was the, was the problem. You know, if you think about Ross Perot's giant sucking sound from, with NAFTA, (laughs) um, the, these sort of situations, it's, It it, it masks the true problems that I think we have here at home that we need to get right first. I mean, um, one of our events that we had recently at the Economic Freedom North America there at SMU, always a great event. People should check that out. Um, But we were we were kind of talking about some of this and, and trade liberalization. And I made the point about, well, whenever you're pointing your finger at China, you've got three other fingers that are pointing back at you. You know, what, what can you really do differently that I think we should be improving on by deregulating, cutting taxes, cutting government spending? You know, that should be a key priority. Um, and if you do that sort of thing, you're going to put yourself in a situation that's more competitive on the global market to compete with places like China um, or liberalize with other types of, of places as well. Um, and, and, and go through and say, OK, what do you what do you want to do now? And, and things of that nature, I think are going to be just so important in that process.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, the the, the reality is uh, there's a very strong temptation on the part of a lot of people to look at the world in zero sum terms and they see China prospering. And so somehow that means we're not prospering. Uh, the reality yeah. is uh, I real I'm from Ohio. You don't have to lecture me or about the Rust Belt, um, but. Uh, the, the reality is the United States has benefited from China's growth. So so I think we benefited from China's growth. And, you know, I, I'll be be blunt about it. Every time you log on Amazon, you find a, a consumer good made in China that you find desirable and, and, and affordable. That makes your life better off. And uh, we should not, like, ignore the, the real tangible benefits of Chinese imports in this country. Um, yeah, I'm from Ohio. It's cost some American jobs. Those jobs are moving to other areas, biotech and... Services, healthcare, financial services, whatever. But, but doggone it, we, we have benefited from Chinese growth just as they've benefited from it.
0: Yeah, I think it's certainly something we can continue to look at. And um, the next thing I'd like to get into is really your book on uh, Socialism Sucks, which kind of brings all this together. And, and the full title, and here it is Socialism Sucks Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. Uh, and so, you know, what got you interested in doing this? I know you did this with your friend Ben Powell, who's at the Texas Tech Guns Up uh, at the Free Market Institute up there. Um, what what got you into it? What what's it about?
1: Well, your, your bio gave away some of it. I've written a lot of articles yeah. and books, and I this is the this is what the Economic Freedom Index report looks like. It's 170 pages like this. It's it's miserably boring and dull. And uh, I mean, people like me think it's cool, but the reality <laughs> is, most people uh, in the real world—not um, policymakers, not walks like Van Yeah, <laughs> uh, most people um, uh, they 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 don't want to read the Economic Freedom of the World Index. They want to read read and talk about stories. And so Ben and I decided to write a popular book, um, and we 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 sent we sent it around the theme of us traveling to socialist and former socialist countries and um, uh, Ben and I uh, have been known to drink an alcoholic beverage for five every now and yeah. then. And so uh, we, we sort of it's ben, ben and Bob's sort of drunken travels uh, in, in the writing of the, in the, in the lead up to write the book, we read a lot of Anthony Bourdain and PJ O'Rourke because those uh, communicators in their different ways, uh, PJ O'Rourke is a great political satirist uh, who sadly just died and P- and hmm. Anthony Bourdain, of course, the great food journalist who also sadly recently died. Hmm. Um, but th- they were great communicators. Um, they were just wonderful storytellers in their in their respective areas. And so we decided to, to go on the Ben and Bob Roadshow, uh, drink a few beers, um, interview some people, tell stories. And we wove in the economics. We tried to talk hmm. about the wonky stuff that economists like to talk about, you know, the socialist calculation debate. This obscure debate between economists way back in the nineteen twenties and thirties. We try. We, we went to Russia, so we we worked that in. Um, and we also tried to tell the real history of socialism. Hmm. You know, the, the, a lot of young people today. Have you listened to the polls or look at the polls? Forty percent of young people say they think socialism is a good idea, uh, which is really kind of I think horrific. Uh, because yeah. we. So we we one of our other missions was to tell the real history and try to put a personal touch on on the real history of socialism and not just with boring statistics like we normally would do as professional economists
0: well yeah and I think y'all did a great job of that it was great to hear and, and as y'all were going through different places and um, I, I thought you might maybe you might want to tell a couple stories of yeah, places story. where y'all there's visited
1: so story, there's so many stories but the, there's really two that stand out uh, yeah. the, the one is in, um, in in Venezuela I got a little bit angry. Uh, <laughs> we went. We went to the border town of Cucuta. It's on the Colombian-Venezuelan border, and what happens there is because there's just the, the, there's no goods to be had in Venezuela now. The hyperinflation and the government controls of the economy. So people are flocking across the Venezuelan-Colombian border to go to the Colombian side, and right right there on the border, there's this makeshift town of of shops, and you can buy rice, beans, sugar, deodorant, aspirin, diapers. Car type, everything you'd ever—it's like an outdoor Walmart bazaar. Um, and these these Venezuelans are coming over. We talked to a couple, Ana, Ana and Paulo, um, and uh, they had driven three days from their home in Venezuela. They were obviously not peasants because they had a car, uh, but they—and I think Paulo said he worked in a hotel and his town was on the other side of Venezuela it was almost like on the the Guyana or the Brazilian border so he had driven 3 days across the, the country dangerous drive now to go to Colombia and he was just going like to buy food for his family um so i live in Dallas and i like the closest thing i can think of is like how bad would life have to be in Dallas for me to Decided it'd be a good idea to get in my car and drive to Vancouver for to go to, to go to Kroger, and that's the functional equivalent of what these people did. So it was going to be a six-day round trip to go grocery shopping, and that was just it. Angered me. It, it really, it really made me. We got we got a little emotional. Got a little bit mad. Mm-hmm. Um, the other story is a little bit more uplifting. Uh, Vance, uh, we were in uh, Havana in Cuba, and Cuba's terrible. Don't go to Cuba. It's miserable. Um, okay. Uh, the, the, I don't think we painted an adequate enough picture because we were drinking so much that it made yeah. maybe it made things look better, but truly it's awful. But we were we were uh, walking up the steps of the old grand University of Havana, which is now a crumbling bunch of rock, uh, rock, you know, buildings that are falling down. We're going up these stairs and the young man comes down the other direction. And as he passes us on the stairs, he said in very perfect English, which was unusual for, for Cuba, uh, he said, where are you guys from? Hmm. And so I, 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 in my bad Spanish, I said, Los Estados Unidos, uh, you know, and, and we, we had a nice conversation with a young fellow. Uh, it was right after President Obama had gone and had announced that the U.S. was, was going to liberalize some of the restrictions against Cuba. And the young man, uh, and I, I, I swear this is, this is a true story, he said, he said as he, we were waving our, saying our goodbyes, he says, we're so happy you Americans are coming to Cuba now because you bring us more. And Ben and I both thought he's, he was gonna say money. And that would be, that'd be fine, because we, we brought a lot of money and we, we spent a lot of money in Cuba. But he didn't say that. He said, we're so happy you Americans are, are coming to Cuba because you bring us more freedom. Mm, wow! And it was, I mean, it was such a great thing for him to say. And I hope it's true. And I, I do, I, 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 like everybody, I have mixed feelings about President Trump. Uh, yeah. some things I like, some things I didn't like. Uh, but one thing that I didn't like, frankly, was the, the, you know, undoing some of the Obama era. I think that more interaction with Cuba is more likely to bring them freedom. Hmm. Um, that's a debated point, I understand. My position, I think, is that the, that young man on the steps of the University of Anna thought that if Americans would go visit Cuba more, uh, and yes, bring our dollars, but, but that the interaction with Americans, he thought, was going to bring them more freedom.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, that's a, I mean, if, if, if he had been overheard saying that, that might be a politically dangerous thing for him to say. Um, so um, anyway, so that was, yeah. the, that. so those are the sort of episodic, like they're both bad places, but we, we had sort of a glimmer of optimism in Cuba. Unfortunately, the Venezuela story has only gotten worse since we were there.
0: Yeah, that, that's tough, and, it, and as you're bringing up those points though, it, it helps to humanize it a little bit, right, of, of yeah, that, what people are actually facing in these countries, uh, because there there is so much that's going on, and you know, like your point there, him just saying that they're in Cuba um, could have him imprisoned uh, or even worse sometimes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. I mean, again, I can show you a chart with Venezuela's economic freedom index going down. I've got the numbers mm. in the book, uh, but talking to Ana and Paulo, that 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 to me, that was much more meaningful. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, that was the purpose of our book was to try to pair the boring numbers with these. Man on the street, women on the street, stories. Uh, Yeah, because you know it's just like we were talking about with with teaching students. You know, they're going to learn more from the game than the lecture. Uh, Same thing here; they're going to learn more from the story than they're going to learn from our 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 math.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. I um, well, it's it's going to be interesting too to see the the effects that are going on. I think you know, trying to bring some of this to the the current economy of what's happening with inflation and. Interest rates going up, and we see a stock market going down. I was reading something earlier. I think just over the last month, a little over seven trillion dollars in wealth has been declined because of the stock market and everything else. It's just one thing after another. And again, going back to what are we doing here in America that we should be trying to improve our institutions, strengthen our institutions, um, and, and part of it going, you know, kind of humanizing it again and the let people prosper way is. I think a lot of it starts with the family. I mean, we we too often are being more dependent on government as being the first line of defense. I mean, they should be the last resort. Instead, they're too often the first resort when they come in. And in one larger, more macro area that we see that is with the Federal Reserve. I mean, they're coming in, printing all this money. Um, they're they're coming back some now in quantitative tightening. but probably going to be too slow and take them too long to do that to really break inflation like Volcker did back in the the late 70s and and early 80s. Um, And this sort of economic way of thinking of the institutions and what matters, we we need to get back to basics, back towards this direction of economic freedom, um, liberalization, trade liberalization, what I hope will also be immigration liberalization with a slowing and even maybe declining population. These are things that we need more of. And this classical liberal mindset that that I believe we share, um, this is – there's not enough talk about this and um i recently had you know one of your good friends and my friend Pete Betke on and um he really dug into that topic a- as well and I-, I guess um what are what are some of your what's some of your thinking about what's going on in the economy and everything right now
1: wait for better or worse right now malays is selling malays is mm-hmm. selling uh clicks on twitter and uh you know it, you know people watch cnn and it's all bad news bad news always mm-hmm. sells well cuz you know more fun to read about a, oh, it's not more fun, but, you know, people are going to read about a bus that crashes. The bus that arrives safely to its destination is not a news article, right? Right. And so malaise sells. It always has been a little bit of a sexy thing for journalists and for politicians to point to. But right now we have an unusually high sort of malaise quotient. That, you know, if you look at the, the, the American left, I guess, you know, party-wise, the Democratic Party, I mean, you know, it's global warming, it's inequality, hmm. all of these bad things, and their solutions are really not very uplifting. Hmm. Their, soli- their solutions are drive an electric car, which I don't want to drive, and, right. or, or put on a sweater, you know, the Jimmy Carter solution to energy. Ah. We'll just put a sweater on. These are not optimistic so- policy solutions. These are pessimistic policy hmm. solutions. And you know, if I may, I think the, 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 the American right, you know, the Republican side of, of the party spectrum, you know they're selling gloom and doom too. Oh, immigrants are taking our jobs. They're doing this. All the poor, the Chinese are, you know, closing our factories or whatever. It's all gloom and doom. And I, I compare that to the message of Ronald Reagan. And and Ronald Reagan was he sold optimism. Hmm. And uh, I'm I'm desperate. I don't care if it's a Democrat or a Republican at this point. I mean, I'm just desperate for somebody in the political world to, uh, to say, hey, you know, things are are good and getting better and we can work to let's work together to make them better yeah and 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 here's how i think we're going to do that it's more of an uplifting message instead of pointing fingers at this crisis or this thing that's going to kill us that thing's going to kill us these people are bad yeah um you know uh, that's the solution and and i can tell you though, i i sit here in my office it's so easy to to get defensive and and, you know, uh, it's so easy to fall into the gloom and doom narrative. And it, I think it takes bravery for a politician. Ronald Reagan was, was, was so unique. Uh, hmm. and he wasn't a perfect politician, but, sure. uh, a lot of things I didn't like about Ronald Reagan too, but I, all politicians, but, yeah. um, but, but he, he at least understood that, that optimism, uh, it's a risky strategy, but it's a strategy that can separate you from the pack. Hmm. Um, and you know, uh, Obama wasn't bad at this. I, I, I got to throw him a little bone here. He wasn't bad about trying to see a silver lining to whatever the crisis du jour was. Um, and I think that's what made him a, a good politician. But the default position for journalists, the default position for a lot of voters, the default position yeah. for politicians is gloom and doom, finger pointing. And um, that's not going to help. Uh, no. That's not going to get us uh, towards the world I think that we we want to have for ourselves and our children.
0: Well, I think that, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that, Bob. And and it's what I'm trying to do a lot more on the Let People Prosper show yeah. is to bring about the optimism that's out there. Um, one of the other things that's kind of connected to the economic freedom of the world is economic freedom in North America, you know, and, and have the states. And I think one of the things that will be important right now as Washington is broken and even if the Republicans likely take the House We'll see what happens in the Senate, but we're going to have a split Congress. You know, the Biden administration is likely to put out a lot of executive orders that are going to need to go, that are gonna go out. I think they're testing it right now with a student loan kind of redistribution scheme and stuff that's going on, but there's probably more of those that are going to go out. Um, and I think it's going to be important imperative really for states to withstand whatever's coming out of Washington um, to bring about more economic freedom. I mean, we're blessed to live in Texas, but but Texas has a lot of problems too. <laughs> you know, we, we have a high property tax system, which is really funded by a lot of local government spending um that it's that's too high that we need more rules in place i i think of spending limits and things of that nature um but they're they're also too high of occupational licensing for example to yeah. start a business and being an entrepreneur and things of those those uh, that nature and so when we're looking whether it be at the world or at the states or even at the local government it's really got to be a first step is how do we make people most free how we preserve liberty, not impede it, not to not even really to try to enhance it into so much as to say that just get out of the dang way. Right. Yeah. Uh, just get out of my way a lot of times.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the title of your podcast is great and, and you know they, they always teach us don't use the passive voice, but let people yeah. prosper is a little bit passive. But they, no, that's actually the, the correct uh, voice that you want to use. I mean, you saw this, I mentioned this China. All the Chinese government was get out of their way. Yeah. And people prosper. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's not actually a difficult recipe. Just get out of the way. Let them build the business. Let them build the apartment complex. Let them let them be a a funeral parlor uh, director without a license. You know, just let people do what they want to do. Let them work. Yeah. Uh, And and you don't have to do anything affirmatively. You just got to got to not do a lot of bad things. So the passive voice is actually, uh, you know, again, contrary to most English teachers who teach us right. how to use it, uh, is yeah. precisely the right way to phrase it.
0: Yeah, well, I think so. And, um, it, Bob, thank you for all that you do. Um, thank you for being a guest from the Life People Prosper Show. And I look forward to continuing to, to read the Economic Free of the World Index. Um, maybe there will be a Socialism Sucks Part 2. We'll We'll yeah. see. But but thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Vance. It's
1: a lot of fun talking to you always.
0: All right, have a good one. Thank you for joining us on the Let You Prosper show. Please join us again on the next one. Have a prosperous day.